Warning, this episode contains depictions of violence that may be distressing to some listeners. Under no circumstances should the following podcast be consumed by children, the elderly, or the squeamish. There's an old, decrepit theater down the end of a dark, deserted alley. The sign out the front reads, Theater of the Doomed in spidery green letters. On the thirteenth night of every month, Baron Sordor throws open his theater doors to the lucky few invited to see the show. The crowds are ushered into the theater and take their seats, whispering in nervous expectation. Then, the music starts to rise and the red velvet curtains are drawn aside. A dark figure strides to the edge of the stage and the audience gasps in a tense hush. Because when the clock strikes midnight, it's time for Baron Sordor's Theater of the Doomed. Good evening, honored guests. I am your host, Baron Vladimir Sodor. Welcome to another night at the Theater of the Doomed. I hope for your sake, dear audience, that you are prepared for what awaits you. For our show is not for the faint of heart. Tonight, we will be traveling into the darkest recesses of the human mind to a place of nightmares where monsters lurk beneath the bed and strangers with candy wait around every corner. <laughs> ah, for tonight's show, we descend into the mind of madness for a macabre tale of murder and mayhem. I present to you, dear audience, the Summer of Capricorn. January 1982. My name's Joe Castle. I'm a private investigator. I find missing people, whether they want to be found or not. My office is located on the third floor of the old chemical bank building near the corner of 4th and West Avenue. It's a real shithole. Four walls painted the colour of putty and a door. Still, it's nicer than my apartment. It was a Monday morning two weeks after Christmas, the first time I met Gracie Anderson. I was sitting at my desk, smoking a cigarette and reading the morning paper when there was a knock at my door. Come on in. It's open. Uh, hello? My name is Gracie Anderson. I don't have an appointment, but I was hoping I could speak to someone regarding my sister. She was tall, early thirties, with long brown hair and bright green eyes. I kept my office dark and she stood in the doorway, peering at me, unsure of who she was speaking to. Take a seat. Name's Joe Castle. Thank you, Mr. Castle. <clears throat> Her smile faltered as she pulled the chair out from in front of my desk. She'd seen my face. Everybody reacted like that the first time they saw my face. To tell you the truth, most people reacted a lot worse. I learned to ignore it a long time ago. So, you were telling me about your sister. What's her name? Malia Nash. She went missing 15 years ago. I was hoping you might be able to help me find her. Cold case. Uh, 
Jeez, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, Miss Anderson, but in cases where the person's been missing for that long, there's not much chance of finding them alive. My family and I gave up hope of finding Malia alive a long, long time ago. However, we would like to find out exactly what happened to her and how she died. All right. Uh, well, why don't you start by telling me about your sister and how she disappeared? She nodded and fumbled with her purse for a moment before retrieving a dog-eared black-and-white photo. It was of Marley and Ash posing in front of a car. She had long blonde hair parted in the middle. Her smile was familiar. She reminded me of someone. Malia was 31 years old when she disappeared. She was married with two children and lived in our hometown of Brinsdale her entire life. It's up north near the Winter Peak Mountains, isn't it? Correct, Mr Castle. I'm asking uh, if she was happily married. Her husband David was her high school sweetheart. They got married after graduation. As far as we knew, they had a very happy marriage. And her kids? Mm, Riley and Grace were her whole world. She loved being a mother more than anything. You say her daughter's name was Grace. Is she named after you? Yes. I fished out a crumpled packet of cigarettes from my shirt pocket and offered her one. She declined with a polite shake of her head. I lit my cigarette from the dying ember of my last, crushing the butt in the ashtray on my desk, motioning for her to continue. It was the 28th of December 1966, just after Christmas. My sister left the kids with David and his parents. They were in town visiting for the holidays and... She drove down to the market to go shopping. What was she shopping for? She was in charge of the church bake sale. I think she planned on making some grand dessert for it. She was a very keen baker. And was your sister active in the local church? She was. She volunteered all of her free time. (laughs) Anyway, she left home that morning, but she never arrived at the market. In fact, no one saw or heard from her ever again. She just vanished into thin air. What happened to her car? You said she drove to the market. Gone. Just like her. And how long after she disappeared was she reported missing? That evening. David called the police when she didn't come home for dinner. What did they say? They didn't believe him. Well, not right away anyway. David was on the phone for hours before they sent someone over to the house. At first, they were adamant she'd gone away and forgotten to let her family know... (laughs) It wasn't until a couple of days later that they started investigating her disappearance seriously. They hauled David into the station and grilled him about his movements on the day she disappeared, as if he was a suspect. It was horrible. Then, about a week later, while they were performing a follow-up search of the house, they found evidence they claimed proved she was having an affair and had run off with her lover to start a new life. What evidence? A note. I can't remember exactly what it said. The police in Brimsdale have it, but it didn't prove my sister was romantically involved with anyone. Anyway, after they found the note, they stopped looking for Malia. But you don't believe the police? No, of course not. She wouldn't do that, just disappear and never contact her family ever again. We haven't heard from her in 15 years, Mr Castle. Even if she was having problems with David, Malia would never abandon her children. Never. Besides... My mother was battling lung cancer at the time. She wouldn't have just left and not checked in on how she was doing. They were very close. And your mother, how's she doing now? She passed two years after Molly had disappeared. So if she didn't run off, what do you think happened to your sister? I think she was murdered, Mr Castle. And why do you think that? About five years after Molly had disappeared, I was contacted by Sarah Prince. She was an officer with the Hunting Borough Police Department. Officer Prince had been investigating a cold case of a woman named Pam Peters who disappeared the year before my sister in similar circumstances. I mean, although she didn't have the evidence to back it up, Officer Prince had a theory that a serial killer was active in the area at the time of Malia's disappearance. She had a working profile, a white male in his early 30s, married, probably works in a position of trust in the community. She said that there was evidence linking the disappearance of four other women from nearby towns over a three-year period to the killer. Officer Prince thought my sister was number five. I took a long draw on my cigarette and sat back in my chair. There was something about this case that niggled at me, something that didn't feel right. But I hadn't had a case in a while and work was work. My rate is $50 a day plus expenses first week in advance. So you'll take the case? If I do this, I do it alone, Miss Anderson. No interference from you or your family. 
You have my word. Do you think you'll be able to find her? Well, if she's out there, I'll find her, one way or another. Thank you, Mr. Castle. I'll wire the money to your account this afternoon. She stood up and shook my hand before turning and walking for the door. I called out to her just before she left my office. Just one more question. Did Officer Prince have a name for the killer? She did. She called him the Capricorn Killer. The Monday Night Alcoholics Anonymous meeting was in the basement of the Church of Our Lady's Merciful Heart. It wasn't all that much to look at. A circle of folding chairs, a couple of stale donuts, and an urn of bad coffee. There was something I liked about the Monday night meeting. Never missed a week. I went to meetings most nights. In fact, I spent most of my free time in community halls and church basements working the program. I liked the company. I liked listening to people, and quite frankly, it was cheaper than buying a TV. Tonight was a busy night down in the basement of Our Lady's Merciful Heart. Mondays were always busy. I sat in the circle, smoking and listening to the others share. As usual, I wore a cap to the meeting. I pulled it low over my brow to hide my face. It was easier that way. People didn't stare so much. Most nights I came to meetings I didn't share. Most nights I just sat and listened. But tonight was different. I felt out of sorts since taking the Marley and Ash case. It made me feel on edge and uneasy. So when they asked if anyone else wanted to share, I put up my hand. My name's Joe and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Joe. Hey, Joe. It's been ten years and three months since my last drink. Tonight I suppose I want to talk about how I got here. Those of you who've heard me share before know I suffer from amnesia. This makes me really anonymous. (laughs) Seriously, I think that having amnesia is the reason why I do what I do. Helping find missing people makes me feel complete. It fills the hole that amnesia left in my life. A hole I used to try and fill with alcohol. I guess, in a way, I hope that one day when I'm looking for that missing person I might find myself out there too. Anyway, I I owe this program a lot, just like I owe the doctors who got me here a lot. They found me in an alley 11 years ago, drunk and dying, with burns to 80% of my body. Doctors told me a bunch of kids had set me on fire. To tell you the truth, I don't know what happened. I was in a coma for a long time. Funny thing is, I don't even remember forgetting who I was in the first place. Apparently I'd been homeless for years with no memory of who I used to be. It's all a blur to me. Luckily, the doctors at the hospital put me back together again. They fixed my broken body, gave me a name and an identity, and coming here and getting sober, well, you all gave me a purpose, something to live for. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm grateful to be alive and for another day sober. Thanks for letting me share. After the meeting, I made small talk for a while and walked back home. It was cold out. The wind felt like ice against my face. The neighbourhood I lived in was dying. Most of the shops I passed were dark or boarded up or abandoned. It was a 15-minute walk till I reached home. An old derelict boarding house with a blinking green neon sign outside that read Plainsville Boarding, Gentlemen Only. I opened the door and went inside. The lobby smelled of piss. A vagrant snored loudly from an armchair near the front desk. I made my way up the stairwell to the third floor, then down to my room at the end of the hall. It was tiny, just like my office. Single bed, mirror and a sink. I turned on the light, removed my hat and coat, and sat down on the edge of the bed. This is when it was the loneliest, when I felt like drinking the most sitting alone in this shitty room, staring at the wall. After a while, I laid back in bed and waited for sleep to take me. And just like I did every night, I prayed I wouldn't have the same nightmare I'd had every night for the past ten years. But as soon as I closed my eyes, it returned to haunt me once again. It is winter, and a blanket of pristine white covers the ground. Snow-laden pines and spruce stretch off in every direction, their arms heavy with ice. I am standing in water on the edge of the lake, 
It is bitterly cold. Someone is screaming. A woman. She sounds desperate, feral, even. I feel the violence in the air crackle like electricity. The woman is drowning in front of me, struggling to keep her head above the icy water. I reach out to help her. I grab at her arms, but every time I do, she is pulled down into the dark depths. I call her name over and over again, fighting to save her with all my might, but there is nothing I can do. And she simply disappears beneath the waves, lost beneath the cold grey water. I woke with a start, sheets soaked with sweat. My heart was racing. I couldn't tell if I'd been screaming or not. It was almost dawn. I could see grey light outside my window. The nightmare slowly retreated back into my mind and I got up and walked to the sink, splashing cold water on my face. Then I looked in the mirror. What's left of my twisted and scarred face looked back at me. It so badly burned it looked like melted candle wax. I thought about the nightmare again, trying to remember the woman's name I was calling in the dream. But for the life of me, I can't remember a thing. Brimsdale is a long way from Plainsville, almost seven hours' drive. I didn't have a whole lot to go on in the case. Gracie Anderson mentioned that Marley's former husband, David Nash, had stayed in town and remarried after his wife had disappeared, so I decided to start there. Luckily, he was the only David Nash in the phone book, so he wasn't hard to find. When I called, the conversation was standoffish and tense, but he agreed to meet me at his house the following day at two spend the rest of the day calling around to the local law enforcement, hoping to glean some more information about the case, but, as usual, I was met with a wall of silence. Cops didn't like people in my line of work. I left for Brimsdale before dawn the following day. The drive was long, the countryside endlessly bleak. It was past one by the time I reached the outskirts of Brimsdale. It was a sleepy little town, tucked away in the foothills of the Winter Peak Mountains. It was the kind of place you didn't have to lock your door at night and everybody knew each other's name. It was the kind of place where a woman like Malia Nash could never, ever disappear in broad daylight. After I checked into the local bed and breakfast, I drove over to David Nash's house. When I knocked on the door, it was answered by a dark-haired woman with a sad face and eyes that were too close together. Hello? Yeah, hi, Mrs Nash. He said, I'm Joe Castle. We spoke on the phone. A little kid appeared behind her, no more than eight years old, hiding in her mother's dress. Mummy, what happened to that man's face? Hush now, child. Go to your room. Sorry about that. Please, come in, Mr Castle. I'm David's wife, Dawn. I followed her into the house. It was poorly kept and untidy. The smell of stewed cabbage, cigarettes and stale alcohol were in the air. David Nash was sitting on the couch in the living room watching football, coffee table in front of him littered with empty beer cans. He didn't get up as I came into the room. Can I get you something, Mr Castle? Uh, a cup of coffee? Water, maybe? No, thanks. I'm fine. I'll take another beer. Thanks for seeing me, David. I won't take up too much of your time. I'm here investigating the disappearance of your ex-wife, Malia. I know what her name is. Of course. Anyway, I just wanted to ask you. Why the hell are you bringing this up after all this time? I was hired to try and locate your ex-wife by her sister Gracie Anderson and her family. <laughs> I should have known. Her parents are a goddamn pain in the ass, as if they haven't taken enough from me already. I'm sorry, David, I don't understand what you mean. The police already solved this case years ago. She ran off with some fella Everybody knows it. But a fucking family won't accept that, no, not their perfect daughter, Malia. David, the baby can hear you. Dawn came back in the room, carrying a tray with a glass of water and a beer. She set the drinks down on the coffee table, then sat on the couch next to her husband, holding his hand and trying to calm him down. Sorry, Mr Castle, but we try not to talk about the past too much. David gets awful upset sometimes. I understand. I'll keep this brief. Look, David, can you just... 
Walk me through what happened the day Malia disappeared. <sighs> sure. It was a couple of days after Christmas. My folks were in town for the holidays. They were planning to stay till New Year's, then take the kids back with them to their place for a week or so. Malia and I were having some problems at the time, so I was hoping to get a few days alone together, you know, to try and sort, sort it all out. Do you mind if I ask what you were fighting about? I was pretty convinced she was having an affair. And what made you think that? Well, you've been married long enough, you learn to see the signs. She'd been distant for a while, secretive. Always had somewhere else she needed to be. We used to do things together as a family, but in the last few months before she ran off, she was always busy with something at church. I remember I heard her once talking on the phone. She was whispering, really. When I asked her who it was, she said it was her mother. But I knew she was lying. I could see it in her eyes. Go on. Anyway, she was going to be doing some kind of fundraiser at the church when the kids were supposed to be away, some kind of fancy version of a bake sale or something. On the day she disappeared, she said she had to head to the store to pick up some stuff, then head over to the church to help the pastor with something or other. I don't quite remember what it was. Anyway, she said she was going to be back by three. I took my parents and the kids out to lunch, and at first I didn't think much about it when she didn't come back. I thought she must have been held up or something. I started to get worried when she missed dinner, but I knew something was wrong when she wasn't home to put the kids to bed. I started calling around to the church and her friends asking if they'd seen her. They all said no. Then I called my buddy's dad, who owned the market. He said he hadn't seen her either. That's when I called the police. Gracie tells me you were a suspect for a while. <laughs> yeah. That was hard. And not just on me, but on the kids too. At first the police were real helpful. Then it was like a, a switch flicked or something, and they started questioning me about every little thing. Now by that time, Malia's parents had come down to help with the kids. When the police started looking at me as a suspect, you could tell they believed them. Her parents ended up taking Riley and Grace to live with them. Do you still see your children, David? No. Not for 12 years. Their grandparents poisoned them against me. They'd be in their 20s now. David held back his tears and took a long drink of his beer. I waited till he calmed down before I continued. I'm so sorry to bring all this up. I've only got a couple more questions. Make them fast. Gracie told me about a note that they found. Yeah. That's what changed everything. The police were searching the house for the third or fourth time, I don't know. They were looking for something to put me away, something they could use to prove I'd killed her. Anyway, they found a false bottom in Malia's jewellery box. There was a note in there, a love letter. That's when they figured out she'd run off and left us. And what did the note say, do you remember? Oh yeah. It said, Jesus loves you, and so do I. A few days later, they closed the investigation. With the evidence I'd given them in the love letter, it was obvious what had happened. If I could just ask, um... It's time for you to go, Mr Castle. I think we've answered more than enough of your questions. Of course. Thank you both for your time. Can I give you a word of advice? Sure. You need to let sleeping dogs lie. Call up Gracie and tell her she needs to accept the truth. I mean, what kind of a person runs out on the husband and their kids and doesn't so much as call or write a goddamn letter for 15 years? She made her choice, Mr Castle. She got her new life. Maybe it's time for the rest of us to get a chance to live ours too. And now, a message from our sponsors. The most brutal and terrifying day in the history of American crime. Demented. The only thing more shocking than the movie is that it's true. Demented. Now showing at the Galaxy Twin Drive-In. Rated X. It was close to four by the time I got back into town. I was beat, so I stopped at the Starlight Diner on Main Street. 
bought a pack of smokes and a cup of coffee and thought about the case. Neither David Nash or Gracie Anderson were lying, at least not that I could tell, but they both believed different versions of the same story. That was emotion over logic. I saw it all the time. Problem was, their versions of the truth were all I had to go on. I needed to speak to the police, see what evidence they had. And after 15 years, I was sure it wasn't going to be a lot. I finished up and paid the tab, then crossed the street and pushed open the glass double doors of the Brinsdale Police Department. Can I help you? Uh, hi, my name's Joe Castle. I'm a private investigator from Plainsville. I was hoping I could speak to one of your detectives regarding a cold case I'm looking into. You that guy that called yesterday? Yeah, that's me. Just a minute. I'll see if someone's available. The duty sergeant gave me a greasy look, then picked up the phone and thumbed the intercom button. It was almost shift change, and you could tell she just wanted to get home. Jenny, what do you need? I've got someone here who wants to speak to you. Private detective. Jesus, really, Jenny? Can't you get... Jones to do it? I'm packing up to go home. Jones isn't in till six. <sighs> All right. Send him in. First door on your right. I made my way through the main door into the precinct. Detective Colin Poole was sitting at his desk in a glass-walled office, packing up for the night. He was a big man. So big he could barely fit in his chair. When he saw me, he did a double-take, then put on a bad attempt at a smile. Detective Poole, I'm Joe Castle. Close the door and take a seat. Thanks for seeing me. You're a private dick, huh? Where are you from? Plainsville. Oh, yeah. Were you on the job down there? No. I see. Well, what can I do for you? The family of Marley and Nash has asked me to look into her disappearance. Are you familiar with the case? Jesus, that was, what, 20 years ago? Fifteen. I was hoping you might let me take a look at the case files, maybe see any of the evidence you might still have. All right, all right. Slow down there, Mr Castle. From what I recollect, the Nash case is still an open investigation and I'm not inclined to discuss the specifics with members of the public at this time. Now, if the situation were to change somehow... Detective Poole smiled, then raised his eyebrows knowingly. It didn't take a rocket scientist to understand what he wanted. A bribe. He was about as subtle as a brick through a window. I nodded my head, and he smiled and punched the intercom on his phone. Officer Green? Yes, sir? Can you go down to records and bring me up everything we've got on the Nash case right away? Yes, sir. He smiled at me greedily, then grunted as he pushed himself up from his desk and walked over and dropped the blinds. It's 20 to 5. I'm going to go down to the break room. Grab a cup of coffee before I clock off. You've got till when I get back to pull whatever information you need. Now, I want you to listen and listen good. Nothing leaves this room. Not a photo, not a report, nothing. Not even a goddamn paperclip. You got that? No problem. And when I come back, there better be an envelope with $100 in my top desk drawer or I'm going to come looking for you. Detective Poole gave me one last sideways glance before he waddled out of his office. Officer Green arrived with the Nash evidence about five minutes later. It was about what I expected, not much more than a couple of files. I scoured through the interviews, witness statements, financials and phone records. Three things stood out to me. The first was that David Nash's version of Malia's disappearance matched the police report, for the most part anyway. He had forgotten to mention a domestic disturbance complaint that had been filed against him by a neighbour after a heated argument with his wife two days before she disappeared. The second was two phone calls made to the Nash house from a payphone in the nearby town of Blackwater the day Malia went missing. The third was the Nash's bank accounts. Malia hadn't accessed them since she allegedly ran off with her lover, not once. There was also the note the police had found hidden in Malia's jewellery box. Jesus loves you, and I do too. Then I noticed the valediction written beneath. Forever RK, 
Who the hell was RK? And why hadn't anyone mentioned those initials to me before? I packed up the evidence and stacked it neatly on the detective's desk. Then I left $100 in his top drawer. You don't want to fuck with people like Colin Poole. He was the kind of person that would go out of his way to make your life a living hell. It was dark by the time I left the police station. I was hungry, but the thought of food made me feel sick. I was nervous for some reason, on edge. Normally, if I felt like this, I'd go to a meeting. But the closest one was in Huntingborough, which is more than 50 miles away. I decided to go over to the local church instead. It's quiet there. I needed a place to think. Besides, no one points and stares at you in church. I could be anonymous there. I slid into one of the pews in the back of the room and started to go over the details of the case in my head. At first, I was inclined to believe the police's version of events, the truth that David Nash was so desperately clinging to. But after looking at the evidence, something felt off. Then I started thinking about something David had said when I interviewed him. What kind of person runs out on their husband and kids and doesn't call or even write a letter for 15 years? Thing is, people leave their families all the time. Marriages break up, but they don't just walk away from everything they know and love. Start a new life and never contact anyone ever again. Not unless they're running away from something. People take what they're owed and then some. That's what divorces are all about. It seemed pretty obvious that something bad had happened to Malia. So why were the police and Malia's husband so desperate to believe she'd run off with someone? Was it pride? Brimsdale's a small town and as scandalous as it was, maybe it was easier for them to believe that she had run off rather than face the horrible truth that her husband, or even worse, a perfect stranger, had come into their little town and murdered her while she was shopping for the church bake sale. So if Malia was dead, then who killed her? Was it David Nash? There was enough evidence to make him a suspect. He admitted that he and Malia were having problems. There was even a report of a domestic dispute and evidence she was having an affair. Thing was though, in the police report he had a rock solid alibi. He took his parents and his kids out to lunch. So unless he'd hired someone else to do it, which was an impossibility when you look at their finances, David Nash was innocent. Which leaves the writer of the love note, the mysterious R.K. Did they have something to do with Malia's disappearance? Was RK the mystery caller? Too many questions and not enough answers. By the time I got back to my shitty bed and breakfast, my brain felt like oatmeal. Right now, there's only two things I knew for sure. One, there's more to this case than anyone's telling me. And two, Malia Nash is most definitely dead. When I woke up the next morning, a feeling of dread had settled into my stomach. Something was wrong. I could feel it. I had that dream again about the lady in the lake. Even though I couldn't remember her face or her name, her panicked screams still rung in my ears. I felt like my insides were tied up in knots. Something terrible was about to happen. I just didn't know the how or the why. A cup of coffee and a couple of cigarettes calmed my nerves. Then it's back to the case. Gracie Anderson said her sister was murdered. Looking at the evidence, I'm inclined to agree with her. So I decided to follow up Officer Prince and her serial killer theory. It still sounded far-fetched to me, but it was better than anything else I had to go on. Prince is retired from the force. We organized to meet at a diner near Hunting Brother at noon the following day. There's not much more I could do here in Brimsdale. The trail's cold. I decided to do some research of my own into Sarah Prince's theory before meeting with her. I headed to Brimsdale Library and asked for any information they had on murders and missing persons in the mountain area all the way back to 1960. Thankfully, the librarian was helpful. He told me that while their records are not on microfilm, I was more than welcome to go through their archive copies of the local paper, the Brimsdale Bugle. Then he sets me up in a private room and I begin to go through the mountainous stacks of newsprint. I started it today and worked backwards. It's laborious, mind-numbing work. Pile after pile of newsprint, enough to send me blind. There's not a lot of murders or missing people. It's mostly drunks driving off the road and teenage runaways. Nothing that really fit what I'm looking for. 
It's not till around three in the afternoon that I found the stories about Malia's disappearance. There was big news in Brimsdale and it dominates the headlines for months. Then I found another one. Pam Peters, who went missing in Huntingborough early 1965. Then Liam Myers, who disappeared from Barnton at the start of 1964. Then Lily Cole, the same year, just before Christmas. She was a young mother from Cliffbury. Just before the library closed, I found one more. Tara Mullen. She disappeared from Blackwater in 1963. Then I looked at the dates these women disappeared. Every single one was between the 22nd of December and the 20th of January. The same dates as the astrological sign of Capricorn. A chill runs down my spine. This could be the break I'd been searching for. Salutations, honored guests. I trust you are enjoying your evening at the Theater of the Doomed. Well, I'm sure you are eager to continue on your journey with Mr. Castle and his search for the Capricorn Killer. We are obliged at this moment to offer a brief intermission so that some of the more craven members of the audience might have a chance to gather their wits, bolster their courage, and prepare themselves for the horrors that await. So please, take the time to get yourself a refreshment while we enjoy a few words from our sponsors. And now, a message from our sponsors. It's night. The house is dark. And you're most definitely not alone. Your skin grows cold as you hear footsteps creep down the hall towards you. Is this real? Or is it all just your imagination? Are you ready to play the board game phenomenon that's sweeping the world one minute till midnight? Play one of three unique roles in this thrilling game of murder and mayhem. Your survival depends on quick thinking. Will you kill or be killed? One minute till midnight. Tell yourself, it's only a game. It was bang on noon when I arrived at Cup of Joe's on the highway just outside of Huntingborough. Sarah Prince was already there waiting for me. She's sitting towards the back of the diner, a thick folder on the table in front of her. She's about my age, with thick glasses and long black hair pulled back in a tight bun. She smiled at me as I walked in and waved me over to join her. As I approached the table, I noticed Sarah Prince was confined to a wheelchair. Thanks for meeting me. Can I get you something? Another coffee would be good. Excuse me, miss. Can we get two coffees over here, please? Sure thing. How'd you like them? Black again for me, please. Cream. Four sugars. (laughs) Sweet tooth, huh? Does the spoon stand up on its own when you try and stir it? (laughs) Yeah, something like that. So, you're here to talk about the Capricorn killer? Yeah. Gracie told me that you'd spoken to her about the similarities of her sister's case and the homicide you were investigating. Such a tragedy. Look, I'm not going to lie. At first, the idea that a serial killer might have been involved in the case seemed... A bit far-fetched. No offence. None taken. But now I've had the chance to go over the evidence and do some digging of my own, I I can say there's definitely a chance these could all be related. (laughs) A chance? Look, I was one of the officers investigating the disappearance of Pam Peters back in 65. Unlike those jokers over in Brimsdale, we worked the case as a homicide from the very beginning. In my mind... There was no way she'd just run off and left her family. Pam was a happily married mother of four who worked as a teacher at the local school. Her family were upstanding citizens, they were members of the Lions Club and parishioners of the local church. It just made no sense to treat this case as anything but a murder. 
What happened to her? Pretty similar to what happened to the case you're investigating. On the morning of January 10, Pam Peters told her family she was going to meet with a minister at the church for the afternoon. She was never seen again. No leads, no witnesses. When we spoke to the church, they told us they'd never even spoken to Pam about a meeting. The investigation went nowhere, and after six months, it was filed as a cold case. So how do you go from a cold case to a serial killer? What happened? Malia Nash happened. I remember reading about her in the paper. The details of the case seemed so similar to Pam's, so I started digging into other unsolved cases. There were five I found between 63 and 66. Then they end as abruptly as they began. All of the women were aged between 28 and 35 and married. All of them were involved with their local church. All of them disappeared between the 22nd of December and the 20th of January. None of their bodies have ever been found. She opened the file on the table in front of her and laid out the pictures of the five missing women. They all look the same. Young, pretty, and all of them have long blonde hair parted in the middle. Yeah, I noticed that as well. I mean, how could they miss that? Jesus, these women could be sisters. So tell me, wh why didn't the detectives in Brimsdale follow this up? I spoke to the police in Brimsdale, but they weren't interested. None of the other precincts were. In fact, they refused to discuss their cases or share evidence with me. It was a real boys' club back then. Still is. What about your superiors here in Huntingborough? Couldn't they convince them to cooperate? They were about as interested as Brimsdale was. The official line in the Peters case was that the department would follow up any and all viable leads but didn't have the resources to chase down unsubstantiated theories. So I started investigating in my own time. But why wouldn't they listen to you? This is more than a coincidence. It's a pattern. A serial killer's pattern. Anyone can see that. What can I tell you? Policing was different back then. A lot of small-town cops simply didn't want to believe something like this could happen in their jurisdiction. Plus, there was a whole macho attitude about the victims. Most times, if a woman went missing, the mindset was that she must have done something to cause it. There's a lot of lost souls out there waiting for justice because of that attitude. So what happened with your investigation? This happened. I got shot trying to stop a hold-up in a liquor store about a year after Malia Nash went missing. The bullet severed my spine. I spent a couple of years in hospital, a few more in rehabilitation before I retired from the force on a medical. By then, there was no case. The Capricorn killer hadn't raised his head in years. I tried to continue to investigate on my own, but a lack of money and my ongoing health problems prevented me from doing too much. About five years after Gracie Anderson's sister disappeared, I called and told her about my theory. I don't know why. I guess I hoped she might be able to do something more with it than I could. So is there anything else you can tell me? Have you got any idea who he is? None. If I were you, I'd start in Blackwater, where it all began. I don't know if he's still living there anymore, but back in the day, there was a sergeant named Henry Higgins at the precinct there. He was a decent guy and could still probably help you out. Here. I want you to have this. It's everything I've got on the Capricorn killer. Sarah Prince gathered up the photos, put them back in the case file and slid them across the table. Hopefully it'll help you catch the son of a bitch. Maybe you can bring some closure to those poor families. Part of me wanted to stay in Huntingborough. They had an AA group there and I could attend a meeting. I needed to go to a meeting. But the snow clouds up on Winter Peak Mountain looked dark and ominous and I knew all it would take was one good storm and Blackwater would be cut off from the rest of the world for days. I couldn't wait that long. Even though the case was cold, I felt like I was getting closer to the truth. I decided not to risk it, so I headed back to my car and started the long drive up the mountain. It's slow going. The roads were perilously narrow. They twisted and turned. Beyond the guardrail was a dead drop into a rocky abyss. 
The closer I got to Blackwater, the more the feeling of impending doom twisted in my gut like a knot. Something very bad was going to happen. I knew it. Outside the car window, everything looked cold and dying. The trees were grey, their tortured and twisted branches reached up to the sky as if in agony. Blackwater was an old mining town, no bigger than a main street and a couple of blocks of houses. I felt anxious as I drove through the town. My hands were shaking. Everything looked like I'd seen it before. I parked in front of a little pancake place on the main street and got out of my car. It's bitterly cold. The sky above was the colour of iron and heavy with snow clouds. The air felt charged like the moment before a storm. I needed a drink more than I'd ever needed anything. Was I close? Was the Capricorn here? Was this why I was feeling this way? Everybody looked in my direction as I pushed through the double doors and walked into the restaurant. I ignored the stairs, ordered a cup of coffee and a pack of smokes, then went round the back to use the phone. Gracie Anderson picked up after the second ring. Gracie? Mr. Castle, it's been a while. I was starting to get worried. Sorry I haven't been in touch sooner. How's the case going? Any leads? Look, as hard as it might be to hear, I call to tell you that I think you're right about your sister. I've spoken to her husband, David, as well as the police. I got a look at what they had on the case. I think they got it wrong, just like you said. I think something bad happened to Malia. The serial killer? Maybe. I met with Sarah Prince today. She's put together some compelling evidence. All right, so what now? Well, I'm in Blackwater at the moment. That's where the First Lady, Tara Mullen, disappeared. I'm going to start digging and see what I can find. Most of these cops could be bought off pretty cheap, and from what I understand, they didn't collaborate or share evidence when the crimes were happening. Hopefully, if I push hard enough, something might come loose. Spend what you need to, Mr Castle. Just, please, find out what happened to Malia. I'll be in contact in a couple of days when I have more. I hung up and looked for a listing for Henry Higgins in the phone book. There's nothing. Still, I felt like I was close. I headed back to the counter, lit a smoke and slurped down my coffee. I decided to head over to the police station first thing in the morning and see if someone can give me a lead on Higgins. See if maybe they could be persuaded to share their files with me. The clock said it was just past five. I still felt uneasy. There was something about this town. I don't know what, though. I needed to go to a meeting. Fuck. I should have stayed in hunting, bruh. I finished my coffee and asked the waitress where the closest church was. She told me St. Anthony's was one block over. I thanked her, paid the tab, and headed back out into the cold. I needed to get my head straight, so I went back to my car, grabbed Sarah Prince's case file, and headed over to the church. And now, a message from our sponsors. On the outside, Ashley St. Ives looked like every other girl. But on the inside, she hid a terrible secret from the world. Was she born of heaven or spawned from the depths of hell? The satanic rites of Ashley St. Ives. If you've got a taste for terror, then you've got a date with Ashley. Coming soon to Baron Sordor. Theatre of the Doomed. St. Anthony's Church was a white, timber-framed building with a black shingled steeple. Inside was brightly lit by lead-light windows that ran down the length of the chapel. My footsteps echoed loudly as I entered. There was something about this place, something disturbingly familiar. I sat down on one of the pews at the back and wrung my hands tightly in my lap. The compulsion to drink was overwhelming. But there's something more, though, something I couldn't put my finger on. I closed my eyes and whispered the serenity prayer to myself. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. 
I glanced around the chapel as I prayed. The statue of Mary and child was in an alcove near the front, Christ crucified beneath the grand window at the far end of the chapel, a wooden plaque on the wall nearby. I froze, my eyes wide, my mouth agape. The plaque! I stood up and walked closer, reading it again, not able to believe what my eyes were seeing, but it was real. I read it out loud, just so I could hear myself saying the words. Jesus loves you, and I do too. Pastor Randall Nell. <clears throat> Welcome, my son. Can I help you with something? The priest's voice scared the living shit out of me. I turned around with my hand clasping my chest, my heart in my throat. He recoiled when he saw me, then quickly regained his composure and smiled a beatific smile. Sorry, Father, you scared me after death. <laughs> Quite all right. Are you new here? I'm just passing through. Father, the plaque, who is Pastor Randall now? Oh, well, well, uh, that's a rather sad story. Pastor Nell served our congregation for ten years. Sadly, he took his own life. Such a tragedy. Abandoning his wife and child. Now, while we at the church regard suicide as a mortal sin, Pastor Nell was always a good and decent man, so I keep his favourite saying here as a reminder to us all. Father, my name's Joe Castle. I'm a private detective. I'm in town following up some leads on a missing persons case from 15 years ago. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions about Pastor Nell? My word, well, of course, but not here in the chapel. Please, my office is just through there. Father Daniel's office was well lit and extremely neat. He offered me a seat, then poured himself a whiskey and offered me one too. I declined. Mind if I smoke? Oh, of course not. So, tell me about Pastor Nell. All right. Well, as I said, Randall was the pastor of this church for almost ten years. He was married. I understand that he and his wife went to high school together. And he had a daughter. Now, I was transferred here in late 1966. At the time, Pastor Nell was having some <clears throat> personal problems and was pulling back from a lot of his duties with the church. Do you mind if I ask what kind of problems? Oh, <clears throat> well, <laughs> this is a little uncomfortable. Um, well, it seems that Randall's wife, Deborah, had been conducting an affair with a man living in the town at the time. Now, this was back in, ooh, 1963. Unfortunately for Randall and his family, details of the affair had become, well, let's just say it was quite the scandal around town. Randall, of course, forgave his wife, like any good Christian would. However, it was common knowledge that the two continued their liaison after they were discovered, quite brazenly, apparently. Regrettably, Pastor Nell was the subject of a lot of cruel and unnecessary ridicule from some of the townsfolk after that. We believe he took his own life just before Christmas that year. We kept it out of the papers for the sake of the family. While nobody was ever found, the police did locate his car, which was abandoned near Crystal Shallows. It's a mountain lake about five miles from town. My hands felt clammy and my heart was beating out of my chest. Can you tell me, Father, was Pastor Nell active with the churches and the surrounding communities? Why, yes, he was. He did a yearly faith-based program for Christian housewives at ministries all over the area. It was a huge success. Everything fit. The dates, his involvement with the church, the outreach program. Was Pastor Randall Nell the Capricorn killer? Well... I hope that was helpful. Sorry, Father, if you don't mind, just one more question. Do you have a photo of Pastor Nell at all? Ooh, why, yes, I do. Uh, give me a moment. It's around here somewhere. Father Daniel opened his top drawer and sorted through it for a moment before he produced a small leather-bound photo album and proceeded to open page after page of old snapshots till he stopped at one. He pried a photograph from its mount and handed it to me. The image was a black and white photo of a family standing in front of the church. Father, mother and daughter. The daughter Kimberly was young in the photo, no more than eight years old. 
Randall Nell looked unassuming, unremarkable. In fact, if I saw him in the mirror, I wouldn't even notice him looking back at me. It was Deborah Nell that I couldn't stop staring at. Tell me, Father, does Pastor Nell's family still live here in Blackwater? Oh no, they moved away years ago. I couldn't stop looking at the photo of Deborah Nell. My hands were shaking. I opened Sarah Prince's case file and found the picture of Tara Mullen, then placed them side by side. They were almost exactly the same. My word. I never knew they looked that much alike. Do you know this woman, Father? Well, not personally. But everyone in Blackwater knows about poor Tara Mullen. You know, she was best friends with Deborah Nell back in high school. The other shoe dropped. The Capricorn killer was Randall Nell. There was no doubt in my mind. I wanted to call Gracie Anderson and tell her that he's the one that killed her sister, that he was meeting them through his outreach program and murdering women that reminded him of his wife in some kind of sick act of revenge. But I didn't have the proof yet. It was out there waiting for me and I knew where I needed to go. I left the church and looked up at the sky. There was about an hour of daylight left. I got in my car and drove to Crystal Shallows. And now, a message from our sponsors. Zoltan's Books. Are you looking for the Grand Grimoire, the Book of Forbidden Knowledge, or maybe the Ancient Rites of the Book of Worms? Zoltan's Books. Are you a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, a disciple of Kothgathborag, or one of the children of the Vision? Zoltan's Books. We carry a full range of texts on demonology, UFOlogy, interdimensional physics, paranormal psychology, and ceremonial magic. Zoltan's books. Zoltan's books. Materializing somewhere in your dimension soon. It was twilight by the time I arrived at Crystal Shallows. I got out of the car. It was like walking into a dream. The lake stretched off into the distance. A blanket of pristine white covered the ground. Snow-laden pines and spruce stretched off in every direction, their arms heavy with ice. Off in the distance, a small rocky highland jutted out of the grey water. I walked like I was in a trance, in a dream. This is the place in the nightmare that has haunted me every night. I almost expected to hear the screams from the woman I tried to save from drowning in the lake. It took me a moment to notice that I wasn't alone. There was a car parked off near the trees at the edge of the clearing, and the silhouette of a lone figure stood at the water's edge. The figure turned and looked at me. I knew her face. Why did I know her face? Can, can, can I help you? My name's Joe Castle. I'm a private investigator. You're... You're Kimberly Nell, aren't you? She stared at my face, but she reacted differently than most people normally did. Normally they recoiled or stared too long before they averted their eyes, but she didn't. She looked at me like she knew me. Have we met? I don't think so. I felt like I was having a panic attack. My hands shook and my palms were clammy with sweat. Someone else's life had begun to flash before my eyes. You're Randall Nell's daughter, aren't you? Um, yes, yes, I, I am. What are you doing here? It's the anniversary of my father's death. He took his life right here 15 years ago. I come here every year to remember him. All of a sudden my mind was hit by a freight train. Memories burst to life in my brain, lighting up the darkest corners of my psyche. I'd never known these memories before. They were my life, my old life. Before I had amnesia, I was a pastor, a man of God I could remember marrying Deborah, the birth of our only child. We were so happy, so happy. My whole childhood came back to me in an instant. So much joy, so much love. Then something changed. 
all the light became dark and something evil that had slumbered inside of me for 15 years pushed its way to the surface. <clears throat> Mister, are you okay? I wasn't me anymore. I was him. I was Randall Nell. I'm standing on the shore of Crystal Shell, watching my wife Deborah and my best friend fucking in the back seat of our car. My heart breaks. How could she do this to me? How could she do this to me? She laughs when she sees me. She laughs at me. She tells me she never loved me. The humiliation. The fucking humiliation. Do, do you need help? You don't look all right. Months later, I'm out here again, driving to the very same spot. I'm in the car with her best friend, Tara Mullen. I'm trying to give Deborah a taste of her own medicine for cheating on me. I try to kiss her, she pulls away. Something snaps in my brain, a rage like I've never felt courses through my body, unhinged, psychotic. She tries to get away, she's laughing at me too, calling me pathetic. They're all laughing at me! Everything becomes a blur, my fist smashing her face, dragging her by her hair into the water and drowning her. But I'm not hurting her, I'm hurting Deborah. It feels good, better than anything has ever felt before. She's dead, and for one blinding moment, I'm complete. You can't laugh at me anymore! I drag her body to the island in the middle of the lake and bury her with my bare hands in the rocky earth. But I'm not going to be a laughing stock anymore. They're all gonna pay over and over again. So I wait. All year, I play the fool while everybody laughs at me. But every Christmas holiday, when that bitch Deborah takes Kimberly to her parents, I'm gonna make them pay. The memories of Randall faded. Kimberly stood in front of me staring, her face a knot of confusion. Daddy? D -d Daddy? I'm her dad. Another wave of memories crashes down upon me. I'm here at Crystal Shallows with Marlia Nash, attacking drowning her just like the others. We struggle in the water, it's just like my recurring dream. The voice from the dream, the screaming, it was never her, it was me. It had always been me. Why did you do it, Deborah? I loved you! I loved you! I hold Malia under the water, crushing her throat with my hands. She needs to pay. They all need to pay. And suddenly she reaches up from the water and hits me in the head with a rock. Everything goes red, the blood, my head, nothing but pain now. She stops struggling and finally drowns in the shallows. I leave her body to float out into the lake and I stumble to shore then fall to my knees and I pass out. When I wake up hours later, I'm not Randall Nell anymore. I'm no one, nothing, just a husk of a person, empty inside. Instinct takes over. I run from the lake and somehow manage to hitchhike, far from black water and crystal shallows. The days become weeks, weeks become a blur. I live on the streets. Desperate to survive, waking up year after year, not knowing who I am. And in the attack, a group of drunk kids beat me mercilessly. They kick and punch me till I'm laid out in the gutter. The smell of gasoline fills the air. All I can hear is they're laughing. They're laughing. They're laughing till my screams drown them out. Hospital, coma, the agony, too much. I can't take any more. Then one day I'm found. The doctors help me. I become to a castle. And I don't hurt anymore.
Kimberly looked into my eyes. She saw something inside me that hasn't been in there for the longest time. She could see me beneath the scars. She could see who I really was. I'm her father. I'm Randall Nell. Daddy? Dad? Is, is that really you? Yes, sweetie, yes. <laughs> it's really me. Kimberly ran into my arms and we embraced. Time stood still and for one moment everything was perfect. I looked at her with new eyes, with my real eyes. And I smiled. I can't believe how much you look like your mother. <laughs> well, well, well. What a wonderfully wicked tale of murder and mayhem we have enjoyed here tonight. I trust that you, my most valued audience, have savored this evening's entertainment as much as I have. Unfortunately, this is where we must part, and it is with such sweet sorrow. But remember, we will open our doors next month for another tale of terror, horror, and suspense. I bid you all farewell until the next episode of Baron Sordor's Theater of the Doomed. Baron Sordor's Theater of the Doomed. The Summer of Capricorn, starring Thorkel Nielsen, Sepp Canton, Virginie Lavadure, Felicity Jurd, Lily Bader, Isabella Rose Harvey, and special guest star Jeff Martin as Baron Sordor. Produced by Aaron Harvey, Natalie Harvey, and Lily Bader. Recorded at King's Sound Studio. Engineered by Nick Bird. Casting by Citizen Jane Casting. Music by Il Drone Nonterne. Story by Aaron Harvey and April Hamilton. Written by Aaron Harvey. Directed by Natalie and Aaron Harvey. For more information, go to www.bloodbrainsandaliens.com.